0: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese. Our bi-monthly podcasts feature interviews with philosophers about their ideas, as expressed in their newly published books. Today's interview is with Charlotte Witt, author of The Metaphysics of Gender, just published with Oxford University Press. Professor Witt is Professor of Philosophy and Humanities at the University of New Hampshire. Is your gender essential to who you are? If you were a man instead of a woman, or vice versa, would you be a different person? Professor Witt found that most people answered that obviously they'd be different if their gender differed, even though many feminist philosopher friends considered gender essentialism to be false. Thus, a philosophical inquiry was born. What is gender essentialism? Why might it be true if it is true? And what consequences does the answer have for ourselves and for our societies? In this engaging volume, Witt argues that a certain form of gender essentialism is true. Gender is the social role that unifies us as social individuals, an ontological category distinct from both human organisms and persons. By distinguishing social individuals from persons, Witt hopes to promote the idea that the point of feminism is not giving women more choices, but about reconfiguring the social roles so that they no longer oppress and exploit women. Let's turn to the interview. I have with me here today uh, Professor Charlotte Witt from the University of New Hampshire. Um, hello, Charlotte. Hi, Carrie. Hi, hi, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Well, thanks for inviting me. Um, so we'll be talking about your book, The Metaphysics of Gender, which just came out from uh, Oxford University Press, um, and before we get into the, um, the details of your argument for a kind of uh, gender essentialism, um, maybe you can give us a little idea about um, you know generally how you got interested in philosophy, um, what interested you in the particular topics that you work with, and, and then how this book came about.
1: Okay, I'd be glad to. Um, I got interested in philosophy uh, as a freshman in college. I went to St. John's College in Annapolis, where they have the so-called Great Books program. And I had been sort of an indifferent student in high school, and I immediately was attracted to philosophy. And um, I don't know whether you know about the program, but they start at the beginning of the Western tradition. And so we started with Plato. And I just became immediately interested and drawn uh, into philosophy. I stayed at St. John's for two years and into classics. And then I transferred to Swarthmore College where I was a classics and philosophy major. And uh, that really was the beginning of my interest in uh, philosophy. I would say that I uh, spent a significant part of my childhood and adolescence um in south africa and um was very aware of what an unjust society it was and i think that that um that sort of realization younger uh, when i was younger made me interested in certain kinds of political questions but i really started in philosophy as a classics uh someone who was interested in classical philosophy so that's how i got into it um and this, But this book is in,
0: in sort of in feminist philosophy, right? It's
1: totally in feminist philosophy. Yeah. And so I started out, uh, and this um, book actually draws uh, very heavily on my first monograph, which was on Aristotle's metaphysics. Um, but I was working in ancient philosophy, and then I began to be interested in feminist philosophy, really in two ways, one being that um, people started working in um, what's called now feminist history of philosophy and as a historian of philosophy I became interested and drawn to this kind of work so part of my movement towards feminist philosophy was via the history of philosophy and asking questions about what whether feminist history of philosophy was different from other kinds of history of philosophy since I was a historian of philosophy and Um, I've written fairly extensively on that topic. And um, the other uh, piece of it was um, an interest in this, now this was a while ago, developing Aryan philosophy called feminist philosophy on the one hand, but also feeling that um, my interest in feminist philosophy and my interest in Aristotle were just two different things. Or my interest in metaphysics, quite generally, were just two different things. And so this book um, brings together what had been for for quite a while uh, two different things um, into a project, which is in feminist philosophy. It's not historical scholarship at all. Okay. Yeah. Um, could you... Maybe
0: before we go on, just kind of give a brief characterization of, of what feminist philosophy, you know, either feminist history of philosophy or what feminist philosophy in general
1: is. Sure. So um, feminist work in the history of philosophy, just to start with that, uh, comprises of a couple of different things. One um, one piece of it is kind of canon revision uh, in the sense that um, feminist uh, historians of philosophy, are working to um, to uh, publicize and translate and bring into the philosophical community work of women philosophers that had been overlooked. And so there's a lot of this for the early modern period. Um, and then um, there's also feminist work that's um, critical of... Um, views on women and other views in canonical male philosophy. So these are two things that uh, feminist historians of philosophy do. Um, as far as feminist philosophy goes in general, there's a lot of debate about this, and I can only speak to the kind of feminist philosophy that I do, and that is to use um, fairly standard and traditional um Philosophical categories and um, ways of analyzing things, and applying them to topics that are of particular interest to people who are interested in social change around um, the status of women. Okay. Yeah. So, so um... that's for me, but I do think it's a contested topic. Okay. Um, and I do think that that um, if you asked another person working in feminist philosophy, you might get a different answer. Okay, well, that's not unlike the sorts of answers you've got uh,
0: at the beginning of the book when you when you described exactly. a prologue yeah, <laughs> I, uh, you know, when you went around asking people well would would you be the same person? Uh, If your gender differed Um, and uh, what sparked your interest in pursuing the question uh, was how people would give you very different answers with, you know, sort of equal amounts of conviction and um, which, you know, raises the question, I mean, certainly for a philosopher, I mean, uh, you know, is your gender essential to you? And and you, um, you the 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 plan of the book of course is that you take each of the terms there and and sort of specify what do you mean by gender what do you mean by essentialism and what do you mean by you um but before we get into this the sort of the the chapters maybe you could give us a little bit of a background on the the importance of the question um in general um and 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 perhaps also for feminist philosophers
1: Okay, let me start by, um, I'd like to do that, but let me step back a moment and just talk about, because one way of doing this is, is, is to look at it genetically and say how I got into this project to begin with. And the way I got into this project to begin with was that there was a debate going on in feminism about over the topic of gender essentialism, in which the predominant view was that gender essentialism was a bad thing. And that to be a feminist, you had to be an anti-essentialist. Uh, sometimes just about gender and other social categories, but also in general. Okay, so that um, it was—it's a bad thing
0: or it's a false thing.
1: Uh, both. Okay. False and bad. Um, so and um, so. Um, Elizabeth Spellman wrote a very influential book in which she talked about how uh, Caucasian women's ways of thinking about feminism and defining feminism were uh, excluded, say women of color. And there was a debate within feminism at the theoretical level about this sort of thing. So if you tried to say what a woman was, would that be, inherently exclusionary Uh um, and false because there might be women there might be women with experiences that are different there might be um, from uh, if you thought about being a woman in terms of having certain experiences for example then you might uh, end up with something false and also exclusionary in a way that is bad so false and bad um i was looking at these um discussions and it seemed to me that uh and one of the other arguments was that uh since gender is a uh social category um it couldn't have an essential feature or features i mean it couldn't be essential uh Sorry, it couldn't have essential properties or anything because social things are just too variable. Mm -hmm. And so the only thing, the only kinds of things that could have essential properties are, say, uh, natural things, biological things. They might, but definitely not social things because there's just too much variability. In a sense, this argument goes with the former one, if you see what I'm saying, because... The, the exclusion argument says there's a lot of variation that isn't getting captured here uh-huh and that's excluding people and this social construction argument says just by virtue of being a social entity, there's so much variability given cultural variation that uh there couldn't be anything essential uh-huh, to a, a category so to to being a woman uh-huh so. Uh, I So my first thought about this was that the social construction argument didn't work. And the reason that I thought the social construction argument didn't work went back to my work on Aristotle many years before, where one of his examples of something that uh, has essential properties is a house. Right. So the idea is, um, so the idea isn't, um, you know, that houses have essential properties or that Uh, Women must. But the idea is that just by virtue of being a socially produced entity um, or category that in and of itself doesn't decide the question. So that was my point. So the argument uh, in feminism went, it's socially constructed, no essence. Mm -hmm. And so I started to to be critical of some of these ideas, Um, But then I noticed something else, which was that these were all ways of thinking about uh, gender, being a man or being a woman, which really had to do with what I now call the Lockean Project. And the Lockean Project is to figure out classifications and the basis for classifications, right? Mm -hmm. And so the question becomes, is there some property that all and only women share and that all and only men share? and um, and it occurred to me again going back to my very first monograph that there's another notion of essentialism which doesn't have to do with criteria for kind membership which is what the exclusion argument and the social construction argument address really, uh, target as it were, but rather this idea that Um, The essence is what makes a collection or sum of parts into an individual. And this is Aristotle's idea. And so I thought that I started to think about how this might be applicable to um, gender and um, how it raised a different kind of question from the question of kind membership. So this this now we're getting into chapter one where you're... Just, we're getting into chapter one. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and let me just say a little bit about going back to the kind question for a minute or the Lockean question, as I call it sometimes. Uh-huh. Uh, um, that question was considered to be important from the point of view of the critics for the... You know, in relation to the kind of arguments I was just discussing, in relation to other feminists, it seemed to be quite important that there be a group of people who feminism represents women. Uh And that it would be problematic if there was no common property or if there was no... um, Criterion for being a member of that kind. Why would that be problematic? Well, it would. Well, it would be problematic because who are you representing? Well, I
0: mean, you could represent a group without them having an essential property, right?
1: Um, you could, um, but I think the idea was that you I mean you could represent like labor union members. Yeah, yeah, people
0: who don't otherwise have something drawing them together.
1: Right, but you're representing them as members of a union, and presumably there's some characteristic or criterion or something that they all share by virtue of which they're members of a union, as it were. So it wouldn't be essential, obviously, to each union member that they're a union member, but... In terms of this idea of classification, there would be something by virtue of which they're all members of that union
0: uh-huh.
1: and make them subject to being represented by you. Does this make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously being a union member isn't. I mean, I'm a union member now. I could quit tomorrow. <laughs> you know? Right, right. Of <laughs> so course. it's not essential to me yeah. in the Aristotelian sense that I'm interested in. Right, right. But these feminists were looking for something which would uh, demarcate the group like a union card. And I'm just using that facetiously, but, right. you know, that everybody would have um, such that they would be representing you. Okay. Um, so, and some people have responded to this by... by. Um, employing a kind of Wittgensteinian family resemblance concept notion mm-hmm. others have just have taken a gender realist view as it's called like Sally Hasslinger who argues that there actually are necessary and sufficient conditions for uh, who counts as a woman uh-huh. uh, so there are a number of different positions that people who are interested in what I call kind essentialism have taken um, and Again, what's at issue here is who is it that feminism represents? Okay. Um, so when you're talking about the interests of women, is there a group there? I see. Uh, so um, but that's not the
0: kind I mean you you defend a different I have,
1: yeah. I have a different. That's not what I'm talking about, but I, I think most of the debate. Is between the people who are worried about this problem of representation Mm -hmm. and then others who think like Judith Butler or someone like that who thinks that um, the mistake is trying to have some notion of of representing a group that has sort of a determinate membership.
0: Uh Uh-huh.
1: And so she rejects that whole idea. So there's a debate within feminism about what attitude one should have
0: towards this.
1: Um, And I take a different tack. In other words, I'm not interested in that debate particularly. And I actually don't think, and this is um, something that I don't, that I mention in my book, but I don't um, really develop, which is that I don't really think that this question is all that important for feminism, right? So I think, I mean, I can understand why people are worried about it. But I think that what's really important is uh, gender as we live it, our lived experience of gender. And so I don't think this question of how you demarcate the class of women and the class of men uh, is as important as... Some feminists do. Let's put it that way. Okay. So I'm trying to switch the topic to this question of how we are gendered. In other words, how our gender um, is intertwined with our other social roles and social identities as we live our lives, as opposed to why are we in this group, if you see what I'm saying. Yes. Um, so you
0: call the type of essentialism that you are interested in uni essentialism, which you which you briefly mentioned before, in terms of uh, the you know, the metaphysical idea of what what makes a whole, well, what what makes a whole a whole, or what makes a bunch of parts a whole,
1: not right. just a whole but an individual, right? Okay. So. Um, Aristotle's interested in the question how is it that a bunch of parts, a sum, uh, sometimes he calls it a heap, uh, is unified such that there is a new individual? So, why, in addition to a bunch of house parts, is there a house, an individual? And uh, this really is his preoccupation through the central books of the metaphysics. Not that that's germane to this book particularly, but uh, so he's interested in uh, the question of what is substance is the question of why is there an individual over and above these parts? Okay. does this make sense to you? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing a very reluctant. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No.
0: No. I'm. I'm. Uh, I mean. I'm familiar with Aristotle's. You right. know. Hylomorphism and. Right. Uh, um. I was just. And hylomorphism in
1: in one way is that theory.
0: Right. Right. Um. So that is the role. Of, that's the sort of essentialism that you're. That interested I'm interested. In. In. Right. What What makes me an individual? Um. Whether I belong to a particular. Kind or not,
1: right? Exactly. Now, what's tricky is that what he's talking about, or or uh, in hylomorphic theory, although, well, in hylomorphic theory, you're thinking about how our material parts unified and organized so that they realize a functional essence. So, you know, artifacts, an artifact like a house or a chair serves a certain function. And it's an individual by virtue of serving that function. And uh, so the issue is uh, what are the parts when we're talking outside of the realm of artifacts or biological organisms, for example. But we're talking about gender. And what is the individual in question? Well, this... this so, yeah, go ahead. So so let me just sort of sketch out that this takes us both into the discussion of gender as a social role, which is my second chapter. Right. And my third chapter, which is what kind of individual... Which individuals are we talking about? Right? Yeah. So... Um, so I have this this uh, idea, which we can talk about more, but just to sketch it out, that um, gender is a social position that has a social role associated with it. So being a man, when I'm talking about gender, I'm talking about being a man and being a woman, and we can talk about transgender in a minute, but just to keep it simple. Um, and there's a set of norms associated with these social positions. And the entity that uh, occupies the social positions and comes under the gender norms uh, are social individuals. And I can talk about how social individuals are different from and related to persons and organisms in a minute. So the question is, how do you become unified as a social agent, given that you occupy all these different positions, with all these different sets of norms. And yet you have to, um, you know, follow a path of social activity through them, as it were, and act in a unifi- in a unified way. As uh, um, Christine Korsgaard says about practical identity, you've got to go one way or the other. But you're standing under possibly inconsistent norms Um, multiple norms, both at a time and through time, right? Yeah. So I argue, and this is certainly a point where people could disagree, that you need some mega social role or principle of normative unity that organizes in a couple of different ways your other social roles. Well, could we... Um, so, in other words, the parts here are not material parts, is what I was getting at. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh,
0: they're, they're roles. They're parts sets of, of roles. roles. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, well, let, let's... Uh, you can go back. I was yeah. just... It's hard for, to talk about one piece of it exactly. Without talking about another piece of it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so,
0: maybe we can... Uh, maybe we should first, before we go on to the the social individuals and and that part um talk about gender you know Mm -hmm. particularly how you see uh the gender versus you know sex you know biological sex relationship um well
1: starting with that right so um i do make a distinction between um sex difference and uh, the biological criteria that are used to establish that, and gender difference, which um, is established based on social criteria, and and in particular, social recognition. So, uh, but the reason that I do, and it's not that I think, I mean, I'm impressed by my feminist colleagues' work showing that, you know, there's no clear mapping, there's no bright line distinction that gender roles, in fact, seem to have this reverse effect in um, helping to reinforce the idea that they're just two biological sexes and so forth. Uh-huh. So I don't think there's a hard and fast bright line, I think, that they influence each other, actually, but I, I think that it makes sense to without claiming some bright line distinction between sex and gender to differentiate them uh, because um, gender is something that has to do with a bunch of social norms and how one ought to behave and so forth and um sexual difference is um, not normed in the same way. And so there are biological criteria and biological norms for sexual differentiation, but those are different from the social norms that uh, we use to establish gender. And the reason that this is important for me is that Um, My notion of gender is really based on uh, being able to make a distinction between biological reproduction, which has certain material conditions, and um, social reproduction, which I call engendering, which is governed by a bunch of social norms that are Um, quite different from the material conditions. So in other words, uh, from a biological point of view, reproduction can be successful or not successful, and it can be successful or not successful based on certain material conditions. Um, But engendering is the, um, the social realization of reproduction, and it's governed by many complicated social norms, that are um, quite distinct from the uh, idea of success or failure uh, from a biological or material point of view. So um, I do differentiate between the two, keeping in mind some hesitation about whether this is a bright line distinction or not. And um, I do so because I think um, that... The engendering roles are really what are central to um, differentiating between men and women. Okay. Um, although they are they are they still rooted in the there are material conditions. yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, so material conditions would be things like large game eat, small game eat. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I would, but I think uh, that the um, social norms that uh, regulate or, or determine or norm um, engendering are very elaborate. I use this um, analogy. I say engendering is to reproduction as dining is to feeding. In my book, yeah, meaning. Yeah, to feed successfully, there are material conditions, both with regard to what's what's being eaten or what the feed is. It can't be poisonous. Also with regard to organs and so forth. Um, but the social norms, what's recognized as okay to do in a given context, um, are m- much more elaborate and not clearly related to the biological norms and also have another feature which is they are um whether or not you're fulfilling the norm is a question of social recognition whereas you know it's not really a question of social recognition whether you or some biological entity is biologically reproduced social recognition doesn't have much to do with that
0: yeah so you, you also use the word underdetermination as well um, to, yeah. to describe the relationship, which I th- yeah.
1: Yes, it is, because, and you can think about all the fluctuations in practices um, and how they are very strongly socially normed, even though there's really no, they're radically underdetermined by the biological process. I'm thinking about, you know, whether you should breastfeed, whether you shouldn't breastfeed, how long you should breastfeed, or just, you know, endless iterations on that. There are many, many norms that are just not clearly related to us, uh, and are radically underdetermined by whatever the biological process is. So, is this um,
0: just a? Is, is this sort of connection that you are, you know, of, of radical underdetermination, is, is, that, uh, is that sufficient for, um, for the sorts of, you know, social changes that, you know, I mean, we'll get to this later, but the sorts of social changes that, that you would want to see or social role changes, I should say, that you want to see. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, that's that's Simple fine.
1: I, I, I just wasn't so, sure so if the, some of... Um, of the, yeah. So one of the points of this discussion, um, for me, although it, it may already be obvious and not, not worth saying, is that the kind of essentialism I'm looking at is not bio- bio- biologistic. Right. Yeah. So... It's not saying there's something to be a female human being and there's something to be a male human being, and that's what makes you the individual that you are. Right. Okay. I mean, I actually think there is something to being a biological human being, but that's not what makes us what we are as social individuals. So, could you? So, there's a lot of there's a lot of room for. Uh, reorganization and renorming of social roles yeah okay so you
0: also um uh draw a distinction between uh ascriptivist and voluntarist right. views of the the relationship so right important. um and yeah. you, you go for a, a, a an ascriptivist an view
1: i do and this is quite important um for m- my argument and for sort of I'm um, getting a picture of what I'm doing um, So I said that um, Gender in my view is a social Position so being a woman is a Social position and there's a, 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 a Halo there's a social role That goes along with that uh, A halo of norms I think about it as mm-hmm. And the One of the questions is um, What on what basis is someone uh, governed by or under the umbrella of a set of social norms, right? Right. Um, And there are two views about that that I consider in my book. I'm sure there are more, um, but here are the two I talk about. So one view says um, you're only responsive to norms if you make them part of your practical identity. And here I'm thinking again of Christine Korsgaard. She has this view. It's very beautifully elaborated. Um, so it's it's you taking the norm to be a norm for yourself mm-hmm. that brings you under its sway, as it were. So I call that voluntarism. Uh, a, a, an alternative view, and this is the view that I think is true of gender, by the way, this isn't a theory about all social positions and all social roles. Um, that would be a bigger project than 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 I do in this book or, or indeed have done anywhere. So this is a view about particular ones. And um, so the view about gender is that it's just by virtue of occupying that social position that you are... Uh, responsive to and evaluable under the norms. Now, you can decide as a separate step that you're going to rebel against the norms or you're going to go along with them. So it's not that I'm saying you couldn't have a, a pro attitude or a negative attitude towards them, mm-hmm. but that's not that's a second step. The first step is so when does the applicability of the norm to you kick in? Right, and to me it kicks in by virtue of occupying a social position and I use the example of uh, being a mother here so um, so being a mother is a social position and uh, if you're recognized to be a mother and there are changing norms about that um, now because of ART and you know adoption and this and that but if you're socially recognized to be a mother which is different from being a biological mother but if you're socially recognized to be one uh, then simply by virtue of that recognition according to ascriptivism you are subject to maternal norms which doesn't mean and I think genders like that as opposed to other social positions which arguably are more voluntaristic such as um, you choose to be a vegetarian and you take on yourself certain norms of behavior or there are certain social positions that you enter into through explicitly um, saying that you accept the norms that go along with them like being president or something, you know, you put your hand on the Bible. So my view is not that every... Uh, that the norms only obtain, sorry, my view isn't that descriptivism is true for all social positions. My view is that for gender and other ones it is. So I think that um, we are, so I think this kind of descriptive social normativity is different from biological normativity, if there is any, and I know that's a big dispute in philosophy of biology, um, as an Aristotelian, I'm inclined to think there is. But, but so I would say if there is biological normativity, it's different from this kind of ascriptive normativity that attaches to some social positions. And it's also different from full-blown ethical normativity in which I think that the voluntaristic view or the fact that you take a principle or you take... A norm as binding on you actually is um, uh, essential. Does this make sense? So, uh, yes, I, I isolate three different kinds of normativity. Um, one of which is appropriate to uh, social roles and social position occupancy at least some of the time, and starting
0: pretty early, I would say. Right? Because I mean, yes, yes. moment you're born pretty much
1: yes and that's that's another way of looking at how a social individual who's sub who's occupying these positions might be different from uh someone who is self who uh uh, later in life who is self-reflectively taking certain principles as rules for themselves or rules to guide their behavior mm-hmm. in so, a kind of ethical reflection. Right. Which, w- which say, a child, a young child wouldn't be capable of. Right. But they would be capable of being subject to this kind of social normativity. And, indeed, I think they are, <laughs> you know, so. Oh, sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, just start with, starting with the pink and blue blankets, right? Exactly. Exactly. This starts very early. Um, so... Well, you've mentioned, uh, you've used the term social individual a couple times, and I think this is, you know, just since the, the core uh, and no, you know, one. Per, perhaps most contentious part of the book, perhaps, I, I, I don't know, um, is, is the distinction you draw between what you call a, the, this trinity of uh, right. human organisms, uh, social individuals, and persons. Right. Um, so, Yeah, if you could just lay out those distinctions and, you know, what each of those entities is and and how they're related to each other.
1: Okay. Um, So, in my book, I I distinguish between human organisms and uh, persons. This is an easier one to do. So, human organisms um, are... Uh, have different persistence and identity criteria from persons, um, and what I'm thinking about is something like the idea that you could have a human organism, maybe a fetus or maybe a baby, um, that isn't that doesn't yet have the self consciousness or first-person perspective, to use a different description, this is Lynn Baker's description, of a person. So you could have a human organism that didn't have the characteristics that are essential to being a person. And, I mean, a human organism would have its own uh, persistence conditions and... uh, Essential characteristics, but not they would be different from that of a person. And so, in the uh, constitution ontology that I'm using in this chapter, uh, we say, we, we, I don't know who we are, but, but one might say a human organism constitutes a person, right? Um, but uh, a human organism isn't identical to a person. So, that's the key. Um, and so um I introduce this third category or this this third kind of being called a social individual, and I differentiate the social individual from both the person and the human organism. So just to reiterate, a human organism uh, could be you know a baby or uh, a uh, fetus or something like this, but, It wouldn't yet be a person because it wouldn't be capable of uh, self-consciousness or certain psychological processes that we identify with being a person. Social individuals, how do they fit? Well, I think that um, there's um, there's another kind of being in there, as it were, that is not a person because it's a relational being. That is to say it exists essentially as a social position occupier, whereas a person could have um, a first-person perspective but not be essentially um, engaged in social agency occupying social positions whereas a social individual uh, only exists insofar as it's, argue, it's uh, occupying social positions. And it's different from a biological organism uh, because of the kind of normativity, which we were just talking about before, that governs it. It's also And um, so uh, if there's such a thing as biological normativity, it's quite different from the um, ascriptive, social normativity that involves social recognition and also it's not species-based. In other words, the kind of social normativity I'm talking about varies enormously so it's not uniform across the species, whereas if there was biological normativity, it would be a species-based notion. Okay, so I distinguish between these three kinds of beings. So
0: let me let me just to clarify um, when would it be correct? Or correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. You, you have a human organism. I mean, you you start with that. Um, I start with which human which organ. in in the fullness of time constitutes a person, <laughs> which again in the fullness of time may come to constitute a social individual.
1: I mean, is uh, is, is okay. that kind of a nesting other of way. of ontological you know being? Uh, other, it's slightly other way around in the sense that uh if we think about it chronologically you'd have a human organism that would come to constitute a social individual so that would be like a toddler Uh who had various social roles but but was not capable of uh self-conscious reflection or having a full first-person perspective, so the social individualist
0: is prior to the person.
1: Yeah, and then you then once you have some, uh, once you have the capability to um, to reflect, to be self-conscious, to have a full first person, to know yourself as yourself. These are all just various different ways of saying some one thing to me. Um. And the possibility of autonomy. So that's kind of the moral and political category that goes with persons. Mm-hmm. Because in order to be a person, you're autonomous in the sense that you can make rules unto yourself and make them govern yourself. So that's kind of where that fits in, the kind of normativity fits into to um, this ability to reflect and be self-conscious. Um, whereas social individuals are... Um, Largely or often, kind of subject to this kind of ascriptive normativity, where you're just acting from a certain perspective, but you're not really reflecting and choosing it. You're you're uh, responsive to norms, as it were. So, so, so there are so there is sitting in your chair and sitting in my chair a uh, social individual and a person that's constituted by a human organism. Okay, um, and, and separately. Is it feeling crowded over there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want two chairs? Yeah. And,
0: and, and, but, but separately, the person?
1: Yeah, so my view um, is that, so I distinguish the Trinity, and then um, the question is, how, how are these three things related to one another, right? And I understand that the, or my view is the human organism constitutes both the person and the social individual. Right. Okay. So, just as let me give my sta- my statue analogy. Yeah, yeah, it's helpful for me. <laughs> um, so, just as uh, so, constitution ontologists often talk about how the statue is constituted by a chunk of marble, right? Um, and this is. Parallel to thinking that the person is constituted by a human organism, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's also the case that um, one can make the following move: um, the statue is also a an object of religious adoration, right? Mm-hmm. And. It's being that is, is dependent on the social context, uh, on its context. For example, um, so, you know, there are these scandals with museums taking religious objects and using them as just art objects, say right. Native American mm-hmm. objects. And um, so, so whether the two objects are constituted by the chunk of marble or the one Depends on context. So it could be the case. That the the chunk of marble. just It's just an artwork. Because the religious world. Has faded away. Mm -hmm. Doesn't exist anymore. There's no context within which. That object exists. So. um, So my understanding. Or. uh, The way I understand. The relationship between these three entities. Is. Analogous to the chunk of marble constituting both the religious object and the statue. work of art, right? Which which are so? Taliban takes over, no more works of art, right? Right? Right. (laughs) You just have religious objects. So So,
0: okay, so um, I mean, this is kind of interesting. Uh, So when when women, for example uh you know may have complained um of not being treated as persons you would have to say that's correct because they're not
1: oh that's very interesting that's very interesting so um uh that's not entirely correct okay so yeah so so I'll, I'll, i'll finish it out um So um, another problem for this trinity is, as you said in your questions, you know, where's the I? Where's the self? Um, And in the last chapter, I talk about the self, and I say that the self is a kind of person, uh, but it's a kind of person who... So the problem with, with um, the the, uh, the idea that the self is just the person is that the person isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily have a practical identity, doesn't necessarily occupy social roles according to the way I've defined it. Right. On the other hand, uh, the problem with the social individual being the self is that um, the self is capable of reflection and is capable of you know consciousness about the social roles that they occupy, uh, meaning they can think about them, they can accept them, they can reject them. So that, that self sounds more like a person. So it sounds like the self needs both to be a social individual because it has a practical identity you're a philosopher i'm a philosopher etc mm-hmm. or uh and at the same time the self seems to be uh psychologically capable of self-reflection and uh first person perspective and all that stuff so it seems to be more like a person so what i say is that um so what i say to sort of get through this conundrum Uh, is that the self is a particular kind of person constituted by a human organism, where that organism also constitutes a social individual. The self is unavoidably gendered. So, the self for me is a kind of person, but an unavoidably gendered person. Are you there? Yes, yes, I'm there. I'm, I'm thinking as you speak. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm saying is, um, I kind of set it out as a uh, there's reasons to think the self would be the person. There's reasons to think the self would be the social individual, and um, I end up with this idea that the self is the person insofar as the person and the social individual are constituted by the same organism so that they can share properties and um, they, um, oh, what's the right word? They, uh, so the self mm-hmm. is the kind of person who is unavoidably gendered. By virtue of its association with the social individual, okay meaning selves are gendered, but there are also certain kinds of persons meaning women women and men are um, thought of as individuals as selves okay. turn out to be persons
0: okay um so this sort of answers a, a I think, a, a question that I had that had occurred to me when you talked about social roles, or social individuals, you know, being um, uh, individuals essentially, um, yeah. const, not constituted by, but um, that that well, that essentially fill certain social roles, and, and it occurred to me. That um, maybe not non-human organisms might be able to constitute these roles and therefore be be men or women on your view. And I I I'm not saying that that's your view. I, I was just I was just thinking about you know could other things on your view could other things besides human organisms
1: uh, in effect be men or be women? Okay, so. I don't think human organisms are m- men or women, or except accidentally. They constitute social individuals who are essentially right gendered. Right,
0: right. So could, could so, something so, right. else constitute? Is what I'm
1: asking. Not yeah. So this gets to a uh, sort of a big framework question because um, so. Gender is essential to social individuals, but that is relative to the uh, social world that exists, meaning it's relative to a social world in which engendering is a central social function, meaning that... So, to put it a different way, um, gender is essential to social individuals, but that is relative to a certain social context, something like the idea that the, the statue is a religious object in a certain social context. In other words, um, social individuals, on my view, have to have a principle of normative unity, given the fact that of the centrality of the engendering function, that principle of normative unity is gender. Mm -hmm. But if, this is a different way of answering your question, if um, human beings didn't reproduce, didn't engender in the way that they do, so for example, imagine cloning takes over. Mm -hmm. Then on my view, there wouldn't be There would have to be, social individuals would need a principle of normative unity, but it wouldn't be gender anymore because gender is defined in terms of those roles. Okay. So a backward way of answering your question, um, because, so a frontward way of answering your question is, I could imagine a world in which robots were social individuals. Yeah. That's a frontward way of doing it. They wouldn't necessarily be gendered. Okay. So, well, this
0: actually gets to the the last chapter or, or second to last, where you you mm-hmm. put it all together, you know, and right. argue that um, uh, that gender is what you call the the mega social mega role, social role, right? Right. That, and rather than um, race or something else, um, right. Um, and so, yeah, could you? explain your defense of you know why gender plays this important you know role
1: so let me just let me just um, go through the, the the kind of different stages of the argument so the first stage of the argument is to argue that to go back to the house image um, and the, the the fact that the parts of the house have to be unified um, I I uh, argue that the various social roles have to be unified so that you have a normatively coherent social individual. Okay. Um, So the first stage of the argument is to say that social individuals need a principle of normative unity. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, even right, so right here there could be disagreements. Someone might think, well, you can have lots of them. Why do you need one? And so the first stage is to talk about why you need one, a single principle of normative unity, rather than a whole bunch of them. And the idea is that, um, so there are a number of reasons for this. We, um, when you're ascribing responsibilities and um, holding people accountable to norms, holding things accountable to norms, you usually think of them as an individual, for one thing. So it's not like a collective. So if you had multiple principles of normative unity, um, you wouldn't end up with... It would be like saying that a house has a bunch of different functions. You wouldn't... Functional essences. You couldn't end up with a unified entity. So um, I don't think the bundle view works very well. Now you... So somebody else might say, well, why does it have to be a principle of normative unity? In other words... Why can't one person have race and one person have gender and one person have, I don't know, being a philosopher and so forth? So first, the first step of the argument is to argue that there has to be one so that you get an individual, mm-hmm. a unified individual. The second stage of the argument is to address the idea that people might have that, what people's principle of normative unity might be can vary. They need one. Right. But it could be different. And in particular, um, a lot of people would think that race, Mm -hmm. especially in a racialized society like ours, uh, might be just as good a candidate as gender, maybe better. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... Another step in the argument... So if you come with me that far, if you say, yes, you have to have a principle of normative unity, it just doesn't have to be one thing. That's one step. Another step is... um, to say that there are certain features about gender which make it a good candidate for being um, the megasocial role that other apparently good candidates like race don't meet Mm -hmm. and so the word that i sometimes use for this is the idea that uh, gender is portable or i try to use this to make this intuitive um it's a central social function that divides people very reliably into into a kind of bifurcated set of social roles and you can go from culture to culture, from historical period to historical period. So when I say in our social world, gender is the principle of normative unity, I mean not just this social world of Portland, Maine, where I am or, or where you are, but rather um, uh, his, in, in quite historically uh, dis, uh, different uh, times and uh, geographically different places, you can look at how a society is organized around this central and necessary function. It doesn't have to be set up this way, and that's why I, you know, things can change. But uh, it has been, right? And that's why um, I think that gender is a better candidate to be the principle of normative unity than race. So that's, it's a different way. So, yeah. uh, my youngest uh, child is Asian. Right, uh, But if she was in her country of origin, she wouldn't be Asian. She would be Muang. Yeah. What I'm saying is that racial categorizations are very, very fluctuating. Uh, sorry, fluctuate a lot. And um, you know, different societies have different sets of categories. You can intelligibly ask the idea, were there concepts of races in classical Greece? That's a, that's a question you can ask. Or were races invented in the 18th century? Mm-hmm. Or, um, and, you know, one can do that with sexual orientation as well.
0: So let me, we're we're running out of time, unfortunately. Um, so b- before we end, I did want to ask at least um, uh, to kind of press on the very last thing things that you were saying about about changing um, you say at the very end that the the point of feminism is is not to give women choices but rather to okay. re- reconfigure social roles and um, so i guess the question is are you envisioning uh reconfigured roles in which one reconfigures an engendered social role or one has instead a social role, you know, a mega-social role that has nothing to do with
1: gender. Wow, that's a really interesting uh, alternative. So I was thinking about um, reconfiguring the way that other social structures support and make possible um, just and equitable lives for women in the context of uh, gendered social worlds. Another thing one could do, although for me that would have to do with entirely changing how we reproduce, Mm -hmm. would be to think about getting rid of gender and um, then there would be some other non-gendered mega social role that would be used to organize one's, um, you know, how one how one has uh, a coherent set of multiple roles at a time, and how one structures roles over time, and um, sequences them. Right. Right. Um, so, so I was actually thinking of the former. Mm-hmm. But I think either of those would be possible. What's important to me about this uh, approach is that it turns our attention away from individual psychologies and thought processes and choices and towards the way the, act, the social world is structured and the role that um, gender plays in that structuring So it's not the case that um, uh, we can just look at a situation in which someone truthfully says, I'm autonomously choosing to do X, and that choice is um, all that one needs to achieve from the perspective of social justice. It's not just a question of autonomous choice. By it, I mean the goals of feminism. Mm-hmm. But rather, um, we have to look at the pervasive way that social structures make women's lives and social roles make women's lives um, unequal and unfair and try to do something to change those structures. Mm-hmm. So, what, one last question:
0: um, What's your next? What's next for you?
1: Um. So, I'm interested in. I have several different projects that I'm working on now. I'm working on a uh, uh, on the notion of convention in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. I'm interested in so nature and convention are these two uh, tropes in. Classical Greek philosophy And I'm interested in And you know Aristotle is supposed to be this naturalist uh, Ethical thinker And uh, sort of one of the Progenitors of 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 Naturalism And uh, I'm interested in Actually the quite significant role of convention In his theory Not just that it was conventional But that convention actually plays a role in the theory um, and I'm also working on critiques of the bionormative conception of the family. No surprise there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, families are, are, uh, are social entities. But anyway, so those are two of my projects. Good. They both sound very interesting. Uh-huh.
0: Thank you. Um, so, okay, we are, we are out of time. Um, but uh, thank you very much for, for uh, agreeing to the interview and for talking uh, with us. Um, about your new book. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Charlotte Witt, professor of philosophy at the University of New Hampshire, about her new book, The Metaphysics of Gender. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, and thank you for listening.